of you gentlemen have been through a lot. And when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. Why are we talking like this? Maybe it's because it's wintertime and we're not sure who or what is the thing. Who goes there? Well, I just poured me a tall glass of J&B scotch. I have a tall glass of diet green tea citrus lemon. (laughs) (laughs) Hardcore. Good. Keep your wits about you. You never know whether or not I'm a thing. No. Well, I think we all know the answer to that. (laughs) I know. Definitely. (laughs) So, last week we talked about The Thing from Another World, and now we are talking about another adaption of the novella Who Goes There, and sort of remake of that 1950s movie, but a much more superior film. Yeah, it's more of like an homage. There's a couple of homages to it, but that's it, right? It's really like a return to the source material. Yes. Having not read the source material, I'm going to say a resounding yes, just based on everything I know about it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's fine. The Thing is a 1982 American science fiction horror film directed by John Carpenter with a screenplay by Bill Lancaster based on the 1938 novella Who Goes There? The film stars Kurt Russell and Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Mazur, Donald Moffat, Joel Paulus, and Thomas G. Waiters in supporting roles. That's a lot of names. Yeah, I feel like that's the whole cast. I I think so, too. Except Mm. for one notable. But we'll get to that later, too. Mm. Actually, maybe two notables. Two notables? Two notables of the cast that actually don't appear on screen. The film's score was composed by the late and great Ennio Morricone. The Thing is considered to be part of John Carpenter's infamous Apocalypse trilogy, which includes The Thing, Prince of Darkness from 1987, and In the Mouth of Madness from 1994, all dealing with some sort of cosmic horror and the end of the world. Prince of Darkness is so good. Yeah, it is. I was Last night when we were watching The Thing, I was just like, oh, I really want to watch Prince of Darkness. <laughs> and In the Mouth of Madness has its place, too. Yeah, it's, it's also good. There's some really good. good moments in that. It does. I mean, it's a good movie. I just like... That trilogy, that's the order it goes in for me. Like The Thing, then Prince of Darkness, and then The Mouth of Madness. Agreed. And none of them are bad. No, no, no. No. So the plot focuses on a group of American researchers in Antarctica who encounter the eponymous Thing, a parasitic extraterrestrial life form that assimilates, then imitates other organisms. The group is overcome by paranoia and conflict as they learn that they can no longer trust each other and that any of them could be The Thing. Nihilistic and bleak, the film was initially panned upon release, but has since become regarded as one of the best 80s horror films of all time. In fact, I'd like to say that this transitioned very quickly into a cult classic and then ultimately into a bonafide bonafide classic. Oh, yeah. Trigger warning, though, guys. Outside of the obvious body horror, when asking the question, does the dog die? The answer is a resounding yes, but no. (laughs) But if you can... We highly recommend watching this movie if you haven't seen it already, because it's fucking amazing. Okay, listeners, you've got to be fucking kidding. This is The Thing. This is US Station 31. You read me? 
found something in the ice. We need some help down here. Can anybody hear me? We found something. We found something. We found something. men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, and it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! Somewhere in Antarctica, a Norwegian helicopter pursues a sled dog to an American research station, all the while shooting at the dog from the helicopter. After the helicopter lands, the American researchers witness as the gun-wielding passenger accidentally blows up the helicopter and the pilot with some sort of grenade that was meant for the dog. Oops, butterfingers. The man shouts at the Americans in Norwegian and continues to shoot at the dog, but they are unable to understand him or why he's shooting at this totally not-a-murderous alien pup. After accidentally shooting one of the Americans, the Norwegian is shot dead in self-defense by Station Commander Gary. The American helicopter pilot, R.J. McCready, played by Kurt Russell, and Dr. Cooper leave to investigate the Norwegian base. They find nothing overly suspicious among the charred ruins and frozen corpses, although they do find the burnt corpse of a malformed humanoid, which they transfer to the American station. Their biologist, Blair, played by Wilford Brimley, performs an autopsy on the remains and finds a normal set of human organs inside, despite the body having two heads and strange otherworldly and animal-like appendages. Privately, Blair begins to wonder if the Norwegians were visited by some kind of royal family from the continent. (laughs) He explains to the other men that this is why it's a bad idea when cousins marry. (laughs) The next day, Clark, the station's dog handler, kennels the totally not a murderous alien sled dog, and it soon metamorphosizes and absorbs several of the dogs, like a scene out of some sick hentai porno directed by Eli Roth. I think I've seen that. The sound of the dogs noping out of the whole situation alerts the team, and Chief Mechanic Childs, played by Keith David, uses a flamethrower to incinerate the creature as it tries to escape with its clawed tentacles into the rafters above. Blair autopsies the dog thing, and surmises that he must have been wrong about these phenomena being royals. No. These things must come from 
Arkansas. <laughs> or at least some kind of space Arkansas somewhere out in the universe. He finds he finds that it he finds that it can perfectly imitate other organisms, and that they had caught it between transformations. Data recovered from the Norwegian base leads the Americans to a large excavation site containing a partially buried alien spacecraft, which Norris estimates to have been buried for over a hundred thousand years. Not far from the alien wreckage, they find a smaller, more human-sized dig site. Back at the base, Blair grows paranoid after running a computer simulation that indicates the creature could assimilate all life on Earth in a matter of years. After receiving word from Mother and the company that they are all expendable, the station implements controls to reduce the risk of assimilation. Thank you, Mother. Meanwhile, the remains of the malformed humanoid they had taken from the Norwegian base assimilates an isolated meteorologist Bennings, but radio operator Windows walks in, interrupting the process, and McCready burns the Bennings thing with his Nostromo, trademarked flamethrower. <laughs> Increasingly paranoid that several members of the team could already be things, and also the possibility of a global infection if it should escape Antarctica, Blair sabotages all the vehicles, kills the remaining sled dogs, and destroys the radio to prevent escape. For his trouble, he's locked into a shed all by his lonesome, totally not susceptible to any wandering thing aliens. Copper suggests testing for an infection by comparing the crew's blood against uncontaminated blood held in storage, but after learning that the blood stores have been destroyed, the men lose faith in Gary's leadership, and McCready takes command. He, Windows, and Nollis find Fuchs' burnt corpse and surmise he committed suicide to avoid assimilation, or perhaps he was just as butterfingers with explodey things as the Norwegians were. Windows returns to base while McCready and Nollis investigate McCready's shack. During their return, Nollis abandons McCready in a snowstorm by severing the line. Believing McCready has already been assimilated after finding his torn clothes in the shack. The team debates whether to allow McCready inside, but he breaks in anyway and holds the group at bay by threatening to ignite dynamite. During the encounter, Norris appears to suffer a heart attack. As Copper attempts to defibrillate Norris, his chest transforms into a giant, toothy mouth and bites off Copper's arms, killing him. McCready incinerates the Norris thing, but its head detaches into a hideous, spider-like creature and attempts to escape before also being burnt. McCready hypothesizes that the Norris thing demonstrated that every part of the thing is capable of being an individual life form with its own survival instinct. He proposes testing blood samples from each survivor with a heated piece of wire and has each man restrained, but is forced to kill Clark after he lunges at McCready with a scalpel from behind. Everyone passes the test except Palmer, whose blood recoils from the heat like some kind of muppety congealed hamburger. Drink. <laughs> Will. <laughs> Exposed. The Palmer thing transforms, breaks free of its bond, its head splitting apart into a gaping tooth-filled maw, and infects windows. Too bad it was McCready and not McAfee, because all McCready knew to do was incinerate them both. I don't get that joke. McAfee is a virus. Antivirus. Oh, antivirus software. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> Lucky I love you. 
Charles is left on guard while the others go to test Blair out of his totally safe shack, but they find that he has escaped and has been using vehicle components to assemble a small flying saucer in a long tunnel beneath the shack, which they destroy with dynamite. Upon their return, Childs is missing, and the power generator is destroyed, leaving the members out of heat. McCready speculates that, with no escape left, the thing intends to return to hibernation in the intense cold until a rescue team arrives. McCready, Gary, and Nollis agree the thing cannot be allowed to escape and set explosives to destroy the station, but the Blair thing squats under the base and gobbles down Gary and Nollis into its moist sack. <laughs> The Blair thing transforms into an enormous Muppety creature and breaks the detonator, but MacReady triggers the explosive with a stick of dynamite, destroying the entire station, with MacReady still deep inside. Apparently immune to gigantic explosions, MacReady sits by the burning remnants, <laughs> contemplating his fate in the increasing cold. Not long after, Childs returns, explaining that he became lost in the storm while pursuing Blair, exhausted and slowly freezing to death. They acknowledge the futility of their distrust and share a bottle of J&B Scotch whiskey before saying, fuck it, and making sweet gay love against the backdrop of the burning outpost. The end. I'm gonna make love to you, child. I'm gonna make love by the fire. That's interesting because that actor was actually, (laughs) Isaac Hayes was actually... Almost in this movie. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh my God, he could have wrote a song and <laughs> ruined the entire thing. <laughs> did you enjoy that synopsis? I did, as always. It made sweet gay love to me. Oh, good. <laughs> the Thing was released on June 25th, 1982 on 840 screens. It earned $1.3 million opening weekend, achieving the number eight spot at the weekend box office just behind Poltergeist then in its fourth week of release. Other films in the top 10 that weekend, including E.T., Blade Runner, The Wrath of Khan, and Annie. Tough. Tough to be behind Poltergeist, which was, I believe, PG. Mm-hmm. So a little bit more accessible. And in even, its fourth week, it was behind it. Even Annie beat it. <laughs> the thing would fall out of the top 10 after just three weeks, bringing its total box office earnings to $19.6 million against a $15 million budget. The film was considered to be neither a success nor a flop. Yeah, with the marketing they did, I think it was probably a flop. But uh, I'm leaning toward flop too. But yeah, I mean they got some monies. Maybe the thing holds an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score currently sits at 92%. The site's consensus reads: "Quote." Grimmer and more terrifying than the 1950s take, John Carpenter's The Thing is a tense sci-fi thriller rife with compelling tension and some remarkable makeup effects. It's a tense thriller with tension? That's it. The fuck you say? Oh my god. (laughs) The film received negative reviews on its release and hostility for its cynical, anti-authoritarian tone and graphic special effects. Some reviewers were dismissive of the film, calling it the quintessential moron movie of the 80s instant junk and a wretched excess starlogs i remember that magazine starlogs alan spencer call it a cold and sterile horror movie attempting to cash in on the genre audience against the optimism of et the reassuring return of star trek 2 and the technical perfection of tron and the sheer integrity of blade runner my hmm someone's got a boner for all those movies yeah i don't know I can see it. You know, it's it's kind of a wet Grinch salad. A little bit. 
And, you know, we appreciate it now, but back then, I don't know, there's some reasons, and we'll get into that as well. I mean, I appreciate Winfred Salads. The plot was criticized as being boring and undermined by the special effects. The Los Angeles Times' Linda Gross said the thing was bereft, despairing, and nihilistic, and lacking in feeling, meaning the character's deaths did not matter. Spencer said it featured sloppy continuity, lacked pacing, and was devoid of warmth or humanity. David Anson of Newsweek felt the film confused the use of effects with creating suspense, and that it lacked drama by sacrificing everything at the altar of gore. The New York Times' Vincent Canby said it was entertaining only if the viewer needed to see spider-legged heads and dog autopsies. And yes, we do. We do, Vincent. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) I wonder how many of these... Very same critics, just a couple years later, were like... Yeah, this jumped on a fucking bandwagon. I know. And I also... I mean, like, this is around the time that there was a lot of slasher backlash, and I know there was lots of gore and horror and shit, but... Yeah. Like, critics just didn't like a lot of horror movies. Though. Yeah, this is a weird time, though, too. Like, we're talking, like, this 1979 to 1983, 84 time, t- kind of timeline where everything was kind of shifting in the Reagan revolution and stuff. We've mentioned mm-hmm. it many times before. Oh, yeah. We covered Cruising and a bunch of other movies around this time, and it's very, like you know Russian roulette on whether a movie a dark movie especially or horror movie is going to succeed or not Mm. Poltergeist was an exception and that was marketed as a family film it was the thing from another world actor Kenneth Toby and director Christian Nyby also criticized the film Nyby said if you want blood go to the slaughterhouse all in all it's a terrific commercial for J&B scotch (laughs) (laughs) Toby singled out the visual effects saying they were so explicit that they actually destroyed how you were supposed to feel about the characters. They became almost a movie in themselves and were a little too horrifying. I don't know. You know, it'd be an interesting question to see, like, how much body horror was in films before this. Oh, and Cronenberg had a whole career before this movie came out. Yeah. Uh, When did Exorcist come out? Mm, Early 70s. All right. And Alien had come out in late 70s. So I mean, but we cannot dismiss, like, Cronenberg's 70s work is, like, quintessential, like, original body horror and i mean i not as widely released as something like the thing right but i mean people had certainly seen those probably not as big as budget no no no. no. this was a big studio film well i guess he was more canadian so i mean like i don't know did receive some accolades well nominated Mm -hmm. at the saturn awards it was nominated for best horror film so it did get some love but it did lose to poltergeist which i understand and uh best special effects but lost to et at the Razzies, it was nominated for Worst Original Score, but it lost to the Pirate Movie. Which is bullshit, but the Razzies are often bullshit. Yeah, it's just something that's silly and stupid. Yeah. In the years following its release, critics and fans have reevaluated The Thing as a milestone of horror genre. The Thing has appeared on several lists of the top 10 horror films, including number one by the Boston Globe, number two by Bloody Disgusting, number four by Empire, and number six by Time Out. Empire listed this poster as the 43rd best film poster ever. In 2016, the British Film Institute named it one of 10 great films about aliens visiting Earth. It was voted the ninth best horror film of all time in a Rolling Stone readers poll and is considered one of the best examples of body horror. Games Radar Plus listed its ending as one of the 25 best endings of all time. It's a lot of top spots on these lists. The contrast from its release reception is probably the most that we've ever covered. Yep, I would agree. In a 2011 interview, John Carpenter remarked that it was perhaps his favorite film from his own filmography. Mine too. 
Agreed. Agreed, John. He lamented that it took a long time for the thing to find a wider audience, saying that, quote, if the thing had been a hit, my career would have been different. I wouldn't have had to make the choices that I made, but I needed a job. I'm not saying I hate the movies I did. I loved making Christine from 1983 and Starman from 1984 and Big Trouble in Little China from 1986. All of those films. But my career would have been different. Yeah, it would have. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into some of the casting as we talk about this, but I do want to call out, you know, Kurt Russell's amazing in this as uh, RJ McReady, the helicopter pilot, uh, Wilford Brimley. And I didn't realize was like his first big role ever. Really? Yeah. Like film uh, role as Blair. Yeah. Okay. The senior biologist. Like apparently he wasn't big before this movie. Like he had a string of 80 successes after this, but this was what got him on the radar. It wasn't a lot of TV. Yeah. I probably in Cocoon too. I he was. Yeah. Later on. Yeah. So Keith David, uh, obviously as Childs, which obviously also his first movie. Keith I believe. Excellent in this movie. Yeah. And Jed the dog, I have to say. Yes. Quite a masterful performance from Jed the dog. Honestly, really. It's some of the best animal performances I've seen in a movie, just from the way that the dog is uh, uh, running away, you know, from the plane, running up to a certain person and, and trying to lick and then going down that hallway really slowly and trying to like look in doors and doing all that stuff. They said famously, they only had to do the dog takes like two or three times for each of these scenes because it was so well trained. Wow. That is amazing, actually. What a good boy. So I had to call him out. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right to do so. Because, yeah. I mean, like, just that snow running scene at the beginning really sets up this movie so well, you know? Like, yeah. it's so intriguing as to what the fuck is going on. And that dog is acting like every final girl in a slasher movie, like stopping and looking behind it and doing all the right things that an actor should do in a horror film. So right. you're right. Yeah. Good boy, Jed. Exactly. And we got T.K. Carter as Nalls, uh, David Clinton as Palmer. I don't really know a lot of these actors outside of this. I really just kind of bolded Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, and Keith David, and of course, Jed the Dog. But uh, Richard Dysart as Dr. Copper, Charles Hallahan as Norris, uh, memorable because he was, his face was made up several different times is the thing. Peter Maloney as uh, Binnings, who's also very memorable. Uh, Richard Mazar as Clark, the dog handler. Um, Donald Moffat as Gary, the station commander, which I swear I've seen Many times before, his eyebrows are insane. Yeah, Donald Moffat has been in lots of different things. Richard Massour has been in lots of things, too. He was in It, like the miniseries, right? So, I mean, like, some of these people have done some other genre work. Joel Paulus as Fuchs, uh, the assistant biologist, and then Thomas G. Waits as Windows, the radio operator, which is, they're all memorable. They're all in distinct characters, which yes. I like. Mm-hmm. Very different from our conversation on Black Christmas over on Patreon last month, where like all the characters were exactly the same and looked exactly the same. Yeah, like 2006 or whatever it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like in this particular movie, you know, it's a fucking sausage fest, clearly. It is. And it was meant to be. Right. But because there's nothing for them to posture at outside of each other. There's no being fake or or trying to to impress a woman or anything. They're all all just dudes around each other. No, and I get it and I like it. I think it works, you know, but, you know, they could have easily, as far as casting goes, cast very similar looking people. Right. And I feel like they don't like everyone stands out and has their own kind of personality in this movie. There is one woman that was cast in this movie, but we'll get to that later. Oh, was it a dog? No. Okay. She's very much a human. So let's talk about the background of this movie. Okay. This is a very important movie and it's very important to both Robert and I. So we're going to give you a lot of stuff, but we're going to try and get through it because a lot of it's kind of fascinating, honestly. Okay. I'm down. So the development of the film began in the mid 1970s. 
when David Foster and fellow producer Lawrence Terman suggested to Universal Pictures a new adaption of the 1938 uh, John Campbell novella, Who Goes There, which we covered in last week, along with, of course, the thing from another planet mm-hmm. or whatever. And it has been loosely adapted once before, obviously, in the, the the deep dive that we did last week. But Foster and Terman wanted to develop a project that stuck more closely to the source material and, you know, good on them. Because there's a lot of items that we discussed last week that were kind of left on the cutting room floor um, as far as like the script making and the storyboarding. Right. And it didn't even make it into the film or the script. Right. So by the time the actual movie was released, it was very, 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 very loosely based. It was a very loose adaption. Right. So after attaining the rights through several changing hands, John Carpenter was first approached about the project in 1976. Right. So before Halloween by co-producer and friend Stuart Cohen. But Carpenter was mainly an independent film director. So Universal chose the Texas Chainsaw Massacre director, Toby Hooper as they already had him under contract. Did you know that? I did not. Toby Hooper was the original director for The Thing. I love Toby Hooper, but I don't think that he could handle this movie. Yeah, at this point, Toby Hooper had directed Eggshells, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eaten Alive, and The Fun House, and he was like a studio director. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, John Carpenter had directed Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, had not made Halloween, but like The Fog and Escape from New York are in there. Yeah. You know. And so, yeah, he was more independent, and but they thought Toby Hooper, we already have him in contract and everything else, because they would have to do a new contract with uh, John Carpenter to make that studio film. But of course, Toby Hooper would go on to direct, well, direct in air quotes, yeah. Poltergeist in 1982. So I feel like we all win here. I would agree with that, because I feel like... And I'm not going to rehash the Spielberg Hooper debacle. We have a whole fucking episode where we get into that shit. You yeah, know? we had a director con- controversy in last week's deep That's dive. right. And <laughs> so. I mean, these things happen, I assume, you know. But um, Toby Hooper is a very singular director, clearly. So is John Carpenter. They make two very different kinds of horror movies. Yeah. And I feel like this movie in the hands of somebody that's not John Carpenter fails. Well, I don't know. Like it's it's there's a debate to be had because is this even John Carpenter's style? Yes. I feel like it's different from all of his other movies. This is this is John Carpenter at his most measured and controlled in my opinion. I feel like and as we talk about other John Carpenter movies, like I f- I feel like we'll get into this a little bit more, but I feel like he's a very measured horror director. Anyway. He is. He's very matter of fact in the way he films. I feel like all the other like really big horror directors that everyone throws around like Craven, Hooper, right? Um, I feel like they have far less restraint sometimes than Carpenter does. In a lot of his movies, I feel like he is really good at like ratcheting tension and things like that. And he knows how to certainly really create atmosphere with very minimal shots and camera transitions and things like that. I mean, like, I feel like he knows how to like rein himself in a little bit. Well, it's, it's interesting you said that because the transitions in this film are different from any other film he's done. And, and really, actually, most other films in existence Mm -hmm. there's a lot of just stark fades at the end of scenes where you wouldn't expect scenes to end to create that tension that feels like you're purposely getting kind of the wool put before your eyes you know to create a mystery and it's it's almost antagonistic in its editing to the audience which also ratchets up the tension it's kind of singular in the way it's done and kind of purposefully done which we'll also cover in a little bit because john carpenter had some opinions about how he wanted to make this movie okay yeah so the producers were ultimately unhappy with toby hooper and his writing partner 
Kim Hinkle's concept, which I don't know. I, I couldn't find that, uh, what their take on it was. And, and it might have been more of a remake of the original film because everyone had a nostalgia boner for this thing, right? And so after several more failed pitches by different writers and attempts to bring on other directors, such as John Landis, Oof. the project was put on hold. Even so, the success of Ridley Scott's 1979 science fiction horror film Alien helped revitalize the project, at which point Carpenter became loosely attached following his success with, of course, Halloween. That's right. Which was also huge. So it was like a marriage made in heaven. So Carpenter was reluctant to join the project because he thought Hawk's adaption would be difficult to surpass. Again, the nostalgia boner. Because it was one of his favorite movies. And along with a lot of other critics, apparently. Right? So although he considered the film's monster to be unnotable. <laughs> which, you know. Which you and I both agree on. The silky carrot? <laughs> yeah. The five head carrot. Yeah. So given his reluctance, his friend and producer Stuart Cohen suggested that he actually go back and read the original novella. So Carpenter found the the creepiness of the imitations conducted by the creature that wasn't in the original film and the questions it raised really interesting. And so he drew parallels between the novella and Agatha Christie's mystery novel. And then there were none from 1939 and noted that the story who goes there was timely for him, meaning he could make it true to his day as Hawks had done with the thing from another planet. I find it a little odd that Carpenter would call something one of his favorite movies and not have gone and read the source material. Yeah, because uh, everyone was looking to that, you know, and the Internet wasn't a thing, you know, so a lot of people probably didn't even know it existed that weren't just in the science fiction universe, you know. Yeah. Maybe he knew about it. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he thought it was more of a, a true adaption than it was. But obviously everyone was surprised when they go back and read the original source material. Which I still plan on doing. Yeah. So the film went through script writing hell with several drafts, ignoring the chameleon-like aspect of the thing, which, of course, John Carpenter thought was making the same mistake of the original film, right? Because they didn't include any of that. It wasn't in there at all. Uh, but he was quoted to say, you know, they were just trying to make it work, right? Because they can't imagine effects that haven't been done in films yet. They, ha- they can't imagine Botine's masterpiece, you know, special effects work because it hadn't been done yet. You know, the howling had come out and, and some other things, you know, but really these writers, you know, they're just trying to make some, something work in the studio system. Right. So eventually Bill Lancaster was brought on, uh, who John Carpenter really loved his writing for the movie, bad news bears. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so he wrote a treatment with several key scenes, uh, that were his, including the Norris thing, biting Dr. Copper, uh, from his chest. And then, of course, the use of the blood tests to identify the thing, which John Carpenter cites as his reason for ultimately signing on to direct it. And, I mean, I think that's good because it's the best part of the fucking movie, like ultimately. Yeah. And so he obviously fell in love with some of those scenes, especially that testing scene, because it's like the height of the culmination of that paranoia. Oh, it's so good. And it's a cool scene to try and film when it actually works. Right. And so Lancaster followed the original novella much more closely than the original, but also made some significant changes, like reducing the number of the characters we mentioned last week from 37 or 40 people. Actually, I think it's like 70 something. And then like it's lessened. I don't know, but reduces maybe the crew of the scientists from 37 to 12. Mm -hmm. And so Lancaster said that 37 people would be excessive and would be pretty difficult for the audiences to follow, leaving little screen time for any kind of characterization. Well, he's absolutely correct. Yes. Yeah. You know, unless you're doing something like James Cameron did, like in Aliens, where everything's kind of already happened to the mass of people. And then you can deal with a smaller group of like Marines and Ripley. Yeah, but that changes the entire exact movie of the I mean, like they that- did do something like that, though, because they do start the, the movie uh, later in the action than the actual novella starts. 
Oh, with the Norwegian stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he also opted to alter the story structure, like I said, to, to put it in the middle of the action instead of using a flashback like the novella did. This is a really good call to, yeah. like, intrigue. Something's yeah. already happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that it. that kicks off the story. I love it when movies start that way, you know? Like, you have no idea what has just happened or happened over God knows what period of time. And you're, like, left to figure things out. I love it when movies let the fucking viewer just be smart. You know? Yeah. Don't beat me over the fucking head with it. Our stories should start at the beginning and not a, like a flashback, you know? Just, yeah. I mean... Cut to two weeks earlier. Whatever the fuck. You know, I don't want to see... I mean, even when they get to that fucking Norwegian base, right? Nothing is explained. And actually, the worst part of this movie might actually be... Because technically, there is a flashback in the very beginning of this movie, which is 100,000 years ago. Oh, God, yeah. I See, I blocked that part out of my mind. But it's the homage uh, it's really an homage title card is what it's meant to be. Yeah. Because the thing font, which I thought was unique to this movie is mm-hmm. actually from the original from 1951. Yep. And so we see the, the spacecraft kind of, it says a hundred thousand years ago and the spaceship falls to earth or whatever. And then you see the title card. And interestingly, it says John Carpenter's the thing. I think that's how it's built anyway, isn't it? Yeah. He does that a lot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Lancaster's script opted to keep the creature largely concealed throughout the film but it was Botine who actually convinced Carpenter to make it more visible to have a greater impact on the audience gotta love Rob yeah so this was super collaborative before the movie was ever shot or even the script was finalized oh I think that's obvious which is interesting because it went through several scripts and then finally Lancaster took it on and then John Carpenter met with him on a weekend and they hammered some stuff out and it turns out Kurt Russell was also of course friends with John Carpenter and they were giving each other ideas back and forth as well and this was before Kurt Russell was officially cast he was just helping out as a friend I know that we'll talk about this in a little bit but I just love Kurt Russell I really fucking do I just do and um on a side note for those of y'all who have not listened to a director's commentary that features John Carpenter and Kurt Russell and there are two of them like go do it do yourself a favor and listen to those commentaries because listen to those two men talk they barely even talk about the movie like one of them's like oh my bitch ex-wife and blah 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 blah. I mean it's just the best like if I could just sit there and like have a drink with these two men I feel like I could die incredibly happy and it's like this is the closest thing I can get to that these commentaries are fucking great Lancaster's original ending had both uh, McCready and Childs turn into the thing, oh. both of them. So in the spring, the the characters are rescued by a helicopter, greeting their saviors with, hey, which way to hot meal? <laughs> <laughs> but Carpenter thought the, the ending was too shallow. Yeah, it is. It is. In total, Lancaster completed four drafts of the screenplay. And the novella concludes with the humans clearly victorious, but concerned that birds they see flying towards the mainland may be infected by the thing so it does have like slightly ambiguous in the novella but uh carpenter opted to end the film with the survivor slowly freezing to death to save humanity from infection believing this to be the ultimate heroic act and wanted to save an ambiguous moment between the pair to elucidate trust and mistrust and fear and relief i mean because the ending has some questions to it i mean like it's not it's not happy and it's not sad no you know it could go either fucking way yeah and there they did shoot some of these endings Oh, okay. and we'll get into that too but right. as as far as casting kurt russell like i said was involved in the production before being cast helping carpenter with some of the ideas even though he was the last actor to actually be cast really yeah so he was cast in june 1981 by which point the second unit was already filming in juneau alaska oh my gosh mm-hmm. and so for mccready's character uh discussions with the studio involved using actors like christopher walken no jeff bridges maybe, maybe. nick nolte 
Maybe. Mm, okay. Who were either unavailable or declined, and Sam Shepard, who showed interest but never pursued. Remind me who he is. Sam Shepard, um, he's a playwright, and I think you would know him most as uh, Dolly Parton's husband in Slow Magnolias. Okay, interesting. So I, I feel like Sam Shepard has a place in this cast, for sure. Not McCready. Yeah. I feel like almost any other of those supporting characters Sam Shepard could have done, especially like the the really science guys. Yeah. Sam Shepard is an amazing actor, and I love him. But also Tom Atkins and Jack Thompson were strong early and late contenders for the role of McCready. Well, Tom Atkins, I mean, come on. Along with Chris Christopherson, who I could see at this time. Oh, yeah. And uh, John Hurd and Ed Harris were up for multiple roles. But the ultimate decision was obviously to go with Kurt Russell and the other actors due to various reasons like unavailability or not wanting to be in a monster movie, etc. I can totally see how Sam Shepard and Chris Christopherson would not want to be in something like this, right? Because their careers were well, already very to do fucking Blade later. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I mean, but yeah. After I, they transitioned out of their, like, their Oscar phase in their career, probably. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, Chris Christopherson... Is an amazing actor. I could totally see him playing McCready. And he looked like it back then, too. Yes. Like, um, in A Star is Born with Barbara Streisand, I think. Mm-hmm. But Kurt Russell in this movie, we have to agree, is just fucking amazing. Like, he's this may be one of my favorite Kurt Russell roles. Like, outside of his comedic work, which I think is brilliant, right? I, this Overboard. Is good. <laughs> Overboard, for sure. I think he's just so good in that movie. Yeah. He's good in everything, really. But... Like, I don't know, Kurt Russell in this movie is so charismatic and likable when he may not should be, right? You know? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's also different than his other roles. He's very chameleonic. Like, you, oh, yeah. you wouldn't think about it because he's always just like a level of Kurt Russell. But his his uh, delivery, this is very dry and measured and everything else and stoic. But you could say the same thing for like Snake Plissken or whatever Mm -hmm. in Escape from um, New York and L.A. Right. But that's a different kind, completely two different characters at the same time. Right. And you can see that behind the eyes. Like he's really good. And then his comedic work is excellent. Like his most recent work is excellent, like on Guardians of the fucking Galaxy and Hateful Eight. Well, and I haven't watched that stupid Santa Claus movie on Netflix that's very, very popular, but people seem to love it. You know what I mean? So he's still being very chameleonic. Right. He's just a really gifted character actor. Mm -hmm. And I think he just deserves more accolades i'm st- glad he's still working you know and i just i really really love kurt russell he's play just one of my guy, favorite play bad guy could play comedy play horror play all action hero all of it just yeah. fucking all of it so for the role of childs jeffrey holder carl weathers and bernie casey were considered i can see some of that yeah and carpenter also looked at isaac hayes having worked with him on escape from new york which he's really good in that movie. yeah and ernie hudson <gasps> Could have been good. Was the front runner uh, and was almost cast until they met with Keith, Keith David. Uh, I will say that John Carpenter, like some of my other favorite directors, really loves to work with the same actors yeah. a lot. Right. So Keith David would also go on to be in They Live and things. And so, like, I, I love how Carpenter can recognize talent and just continues to, to cast them in things that he that they might be good in. Even people that you wouldn't think would be like a genre actor. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Ernie Hudson. Yeah. Though that's. Yeah, I don't know. But the thing was David's first significant film role and coming from a theater background, he had to learn on set how to hold himself back and not show every emotion his character was feeling. And uh, he uh, he actually took note from some of the other actors that had been on, on, in, in film and, you know, made that transition before. And he said some of his, his best coaching on, you know, to get into film acting was on that set. Well, I think he did a good job. And they mentored him and they took him under their wing. Because he only really shows one emotion throughout this entire movie. And that's just like 
boring disdain a little bit, but he does it well. So, yeah. So for Blair, the team chose the then unknown Wilfred Brimley as they wanted an everyman whose absence wouldn't be questioned by the audience until the appropriate time. And Carpenter actually also wanted to cast uh, Donald Pleasance in this role, but it was decided that he was too recognizable to accommodate. I mean, I think he made the right choice actually. Yeah. Cause people would be looking for that fame, you know, famous face or whatever. Right. Right. And so I, I really think it's, I wish movies would do this more often, which is cast more unknowns. And we're seeing that less and less. Every once in a while. I mean, like. Except for the independent films and the smaller films and stuff. But the big studio films, we just don't see the unknowns as much. I feel like if you like, if you if you look at like the, the Oscars, right? If you look at like the supporting categories, I think that people will take a chance on unknowns for like a smaller role or whatever, which I mean, Blair is kind of in that supporting area, right? But you're right. I feel like people should do that because there are lots of actors who have been working for years that no one recognizes. And I feel like they took, he took a page of his own book with like Halloween and his other independent films that you can have a successful film with unknowns mm-hmm. and even build up new stars. Exactly. You know, and Chilean is another good example of this that, you know, basically paved the way for this movie from the studio perspective. I feel like Carpenter does this a lot too. I mean, like Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously like Kurt Russell became an action star and transitioned out of like Disney. Right. Yeah. Through Carpenter, Adrian Barbeau. I mean, like everyone in, in alien was unknown, including yeah. Sigourney Weaver, except for, I think the captain, who at that point Tom Skerritt Tom Skerritt Tom Skerritt was fairly well known yeah. yeah so Rob Bottin lobbied hard to play Palmer okay himself but it was deemed impossible for him to do that alongside his existing duties and uh as the character had some comedic moments Universal brought in comedians Jay Leno oh. Gary Shandling <laughs> Charles Fleischer among some others, but opted to go with actor David Clennon who was better suited to play the dramatic elements and that's one of the people that took um Keith David under his wing. I feel like some of these choices would have been way, way too comedic, right? Unless, unless they're yeah. really good at like having that dramatic, like he doesn't have that many comedic, he has some comedic reactions ish borderline adjacent. Maybe, maybe you gotta be fucking kidding is, is yeah. the big comedic moment. But I mean, yeah. he, he delivers a funny line. That fucking couch line is great. But also like, I feel like there are other characters. Well, who he doesn't per- do the couch line. Oh, that's we're talking about Palmer. Oh, okay. I, uh, you're talking about Gary. Gary, <laughs> Commander Gary. It's tough to remember all these names. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because they don't always say the names that often in the movie either. No, that, that's not true. They say their names all the time. But <clears throat> I mean, like there are other there are other characters who have a lot more like c- comedic relief throughout the movie than I feel that Palmer does. Yeah. So like Windows, I guess a little bit. Certainly. A little bit. The cook. Yeah. He has to be more vulnerable. But Robo Dean was like 21 years old. So they've been too young too. He would have been the baby. I don't even know what he looks like in real life. I, I, don't, I don't either, but uh, Powers Booth, Lee Van Cleef, <laughs> Jerry Orbach, and Kevin Conway were considered for the role of Gary. So each actor was paid $50,000. But after the more established Russell was cast, his salary increased to 400000 <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, and then I made, I made another mention of Jet the Dog. <laughs> Which is good. It's a good boy. Yeah, good boy. So uh, we have a lot of information about the making of and the budget for this movie that just kept going up and up. All right. Yeah. So Carpenter, a fan of Hawk's adaption uh, from 1951 that we covered last week, paid homage to it in Halloween because, of course, all this time he's working on these scripts and he's being talked to about this movie. So even before he did Halloween and he watched the thing from another world several times for the inspiration before filming began. And uh, he and cinematographer Dean Cundy first worked together on Halloween and the thing was their first big budget project ever for a major film studio. I was going to ask, like, where have I heard Dean Cundy before? Yeah. 
But even in our Halloween episode, we talk about some of the things that they did. It's cool that he was able to take some of his crew with him that worked on Halloween. I mean, like, he works with the same actors, a lot of the same crew, clearly. I mean, like, when you want to be a successful filmmaker, and this is just my opinion, surround yourself with the people you know you work best with. Well, if you had a really good time, and like Jamie Lee Curtis said that they were just like shoestring, like just independent filmmaking Halloween and it was like the best crew ever and they were really tight knit and then you get that big success out of it of course you want to bring those people with you if you had a good time and a good outcome you know agreed but I mean like we we talked a bit a good chunk about the cinematography in Halloween we so, did yeah yeah. Uh, the thing was storyboarded extensively by Mike Plug and mentor um, Hubner before filming began and their work was so detailed that many of the film's shots replicate the image layout completely i can totally see that me too you'd have to with something like this yes those trans creature transitions and things like that there is just so much going on special effects wise set wise like all of it like if you did not take the time to make a detailed storyboard this would have gotten off the rails you'd have to with something so technical I yes. feel like, yeah. So Universally initially set the budget of $10 million with 200000 for creature effects, which at the time was more than the studio had ever allocated to a monster film. I don't know if it's any studio ever, but it's more than Universal had ever budgeted. I'm not saying something for Universal. And of course that went like more than like doubled, tripled, quadrupled, I think, by the end of this. Mm-hmm. So as storyboarding and designs were finalized, the crew estimated that they would need at least 750000 for creature effects, more than 200,000, a figure Universal executives agreed to after seeing uh, images and pictures and, and previous work done by Rob Boutin. Yeah, Rob Boutin, I think at this point, had already started to make a name for himself. So with the howling. Yeah, yeah, very, very much. And I think it was clear that he was really, really good at, at some of the special effects and makeup design, especially when it comes to things like transformation, yeah. right? So that still seems cheap, for what this movie is. Well, recall this is also 1982 money. I, I, I guess. Yeah. But like, I don't The effects in this movie are like, to me tops. Like I compare a lot of other horror movies to the thing specifically and the howling. Mm-hmm. Right. I really think that Rob Boutine's amazing. And <clears throat> if that's the kind of money that he had, it feels like they gave him a lot more of a budget. Yeah. Or it looks like, but many of the outdoor scenes filmed in Juneau, Alaska were so cold that the cameras would freeze and break. Oh, Jesus. But then like warming them up was worse because it would create a fog on the lens and that they'd have to clean up like every 15 seconds of filming. And so that wasn't, they'd have to let them, the cameras freeze. Thank right? God they didn't film this on some sort of like soundstage though. So that they did a lot of the internals on, on soundstages. Okay. Uh, right. And that's where most of the stuff Botin was, but all of those external shots mm-hmm. pretty much are, were out there and they did a significant amount of filming. So the effects budget ran over <laughs> and uh, eventually totaled 1.5 million. It's a little bit more. Forcing the elimination of some scenes, including Nalls' uh, confrontation of a creature dubbed the box thing. I would have loved What's to that? see that. I don't know. It's, oh my God, that's so intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting because we mentioned the song last week and they find the thing in a box. Oh, that's that right. So I'm wondering if it's an homage to the, the song. God, I love that song now. I don't know. Um, but by the end of production, Carpenter had to make a personal appeal to executive Ned Tennant for $100,000 to complete a simplified version of the Blair thing, which, you know, shows. <laughs> so the final cost was $12.4 million and overhead cost brought it to $15 million. Which I still think is cheap. They still cut it because they originally said like $14 million, right? Or something like that. So. It went over, but I don't know what the marketing was on top of that or if that included marketing, but usually it doesn't. 
So to me, that would make it a flop. I don't, at least initially. Obviously, I was too young to remember marketing for this movie. Like, I don't remember it. 1982. You know what I mean? Like, I was fucking three years old. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't. Well, what, like, as usual, we'll put the original trailer in. Right. But, uh, I did hear some things about the marketing that weren't really mass appeal enough, especially considering all the movies that it was up against, including Poltergeist. I also don't know, <clears throat> and this is a little off topic, but I mean, talking about like marketing as a budget, a budgetary item. Like today, we know years in advance sometimes when big temple movies are coming out, right? And so like other studios and other film like distributors can look and be like, no, this is the wrong time to release this movie because we have Marvel XYZ or whatnot, right? I don't know if that was the case back in 1982, but 1982 obviously was a really fucking big year for like genre and sci-fi movies and like horror adjacency kind of stuff. Something that we would see later on in the 80s with like, what 84 85 came around and we had like ghostbusters and all that other shit you know and so they would have to market the fuck out of this movie in that summer just to even try to compete with something like et you know yeah and i feel like all those family friendly stuff you know was drawing and then that was sucking up kind of the you know the peripheral you know box office numbers also there's some other things going on in the economy at this point and also, I think maybe the marketing should have been a little bit more um, spoilery for the masses, kind of like Hitchcock used to do. Yeah. You know, because he could get away with it in the market, like some of his movies by hanging a lantern on it in the marketing, like the most shocking thing. And you have there's going to be guards at the door and, you know, all this other stuff that he would do, like, don't buy this ticket if you're a weak stomach and, you know, all that stuff. And I feel like they could have done a little bit of that maybe for this movie. And peep, the critics would have had that lantern kind of shined on that before they walked in and got all of those effects to today's. I think as it was marketed, it was probably perfect because then everyone would go and be surprised. Right. You know, I mean, I would, I feel like John Carpenter had to have been some sort of a fan of William Castle who did all those things. He was super gimmicky, you know, like to release his movies. So, and there could have been something, right. But I don't know. I assume at some point we're going to talk about, you know, the reception to this, both from the public at large and critics and things. Like that. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different reasons given, but you know, I think maybe all of it's kind of swirling together. I don't think there's one answer, Mm-mm. you know, but first, I want to talk about some of those multiple endings. Okay. So Carpenter filmed multiple endings for the thing, obviously, including a happier ending because the editor, Todd Ramsey, thought that the bleak nihilistic conclusion would not test well with audiences. So in one version, McCready is rescued and given a blood test that proves he is not infected. Carver said that stylistically, this ending would have been cheesy. Yes. But I think all these were filmed. All right. So uh, editor... Verna Fields was tasked with reworking the ending to add clarity and resolution, and it was finally decided to create an entirely new scene, which omitted the suspicion of Childs being infected by removing him out of the scene completely, leaving McCready alone. With no answer as to what happened to Childs? Yes. And so this new ending tested only slightly better with audiences than the original, and the production team agreed to the studio's request to use it. Oh, okay. So it was set to go to print for theaters when the producers, Carpenter and uh, executive Helena Hacker, decided the film was better left with ambiguity instead of nothing at all. And so Carpenter gave his approval to restore the original ambiguous ending, but a scream was inserted over the outpost explosion to posit the monster's death. Mm. Which, you know, fine. Uh, Carpenter later noted that both the original ending and the ending without Childs tested poorly with audiences, which he interpreted as the film simply not being heroic enough. (laughs) Okay. It doesn't have to be like Predator or something, you know, or, you know, Ripley finally killing the monster and it being less ambiguous, you know, 
even alien ends less ambiguously than this does but i think this is the right ending for this movie i agree i love this ending it's one of my favorite endings to a film ever me too i mean i have no problems with things ending bleak right because i mean no let's remember the genre that we're watching you can go a little too far like i would argue the mist you know on depending on the day i might say it's a little too far I think it's perfect. I mean, on another day, I might say it's perfect like you, you know, I just really, I really like offense. Yeah. I mean, I can see that, you know, and even like, you know, stringent horror fans would say like, that's too much or whatever, you know, like give me something a little happier. I'm just not one of those horror fans. I'm like, just remember what we just watched for the last 90 minutes to two hours and nothing has been pleasant, you know, and it's okay for it to not be pleasant at the very, very end either. I love an ambiguous ending that leaves open questions and I love endings that can just end super, super bleak or nihilistic. Well, I love it when it supports the movie's meaning and message. And this one, it 100% does. Yes. With paranoia and mistrust. But like in The Mist, you could argue that was like bordering on Wequiem from a dream, just like trauma porn that had nothing to do with the theme of the movie with him killing, you know, his kid as a mercy kill. And then, you know, it countered against the hero of the movie in a way that was counter to the actual meaning of the film overall and its themes. I don't know. I mean, I feel like whenever we get to finally deep dive into The Mist, we'll have this conversation, right? But just since we're like talking about it in like conjunction with this particular movie, I feel like some of the themes in The Mist have to do with like self-despair and not wanting to live through something as horrifying as what they were doing. And so I feel like that ending really fits. Yeah, it could. And there's definitely room for argument there, I think, versus this. There's almost like to me, it's very sealed. Like there is no fucking argument that this is a bad ending or something or that oh, doesn't no, no. fit the theme. Also, Whatever. this reminds me that we really need to do the mist. We do. We really <laughs> fucking do. Yeah. So we'll deep dive the color version and we'll deep dive the black and white version. I've never seen the black and white version. I know. I want to see it. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so let's get into the style, the look and the feel. Okay. Because I feel like there's a lot to talk about here. As far as like style and influence, I really keep thinking about Alien, you know, and everything's kind of a reaction to each other. Like Star Wars came out and every studio was like, what do we have? And so like Alien was made trying to be like the shining in space, capitalizing on Star Wars success, you know, and then I also kind of recognize a little bit of Jorge in this. I felt like he was maybe trying to do like a Dawn of the Dead uh, departure like Jorge did. Uh, Didn't we just talk about uh, the 1951 thing for another world sort of like having an alien type moment where we think maybe like scott yes took a little bit the from your counter right that looks like the motion tracker and stuff yeah, yeah it's just so neat to like piece things together and i can definitely see some jorge in this right i can see it's to me i look at this and it's mostly it's like you know if you're going to say influence it's not the movie itself but no. the things that influenced it's like 70 percent alien and 30 percent george romero yes i mean like a chunk of this really does feel like a response to alien right and oh, just yeah. like the way that the effects are done the the, 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 the subject matter universe the, yes. the truckers in space like all, all of it. these people like they the original story is like scientists right and he really toned this down to be like mechanics and electricians and biologists you know which is very much like alien and then yes. when we get into things like dawn of the dead night of the living dead which have that very bleak nihilistic just feeling to all of it right all those things combined really make this movie what it is you're absolutely right i love it 
you know and alien already feels kind of like a stripped down monster movie right uh-huh. but this feels like even a more stripped down version of alien because you don't have the another subtext of like corporatism or expendability and things like that they're alone there there is no communication and that's that's i was so glad that you're bringing this up right now because we were watching this last night and something that was going on in my head that i've never really thought about while watching the thing is like what are they doing there like why is this outpost here like what is the point of it like they say it's a scientific outpost right or scientific research they have all these like you know um like technical people and they also have a bunch of scientists but they never explain like the purpose of them being in antarctica like it's just it's not really talked about it's not part of the story yeah but the whole time i was just like now what are they studying exactly like why are they here you know and and who do they report to and things like that which would have changed the movie completely and would have made it a little bit more like alien it cut out that 30 minutes of exposition that we didn't need yeah you know because it doesn't matter right you know and of course like i would know like okay they're they're going out and they're doing core samples they're measuring the weather they're doing like ozone stuff like they're doing all kinds of stuff out there sure right and then you have there serve as a base for other nations or even just other scientists to do their projects and like just base there and pay you know whatever for the base you know and so there's lots of stuff that's going out there but it's just like a a maintenance because a lot of countries have little bases out there and it's part of a a political presence as well that's true you know so there's all these things that are kind of wrapped into bases like these I just feel like nobody seems to be working on anything. You know what I mean? Well, they're not anymore after this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, I mean, but like while they were there, I mean, I don't know how long they had been there. You know, I don't remember if they talk about that. Well, they have a biologist. They have a meteorologist. They have a geologist. Like these are all part of their their jobs that are mentioned sometimes sprinkled throughout. But that's it. You have the pilot. Just some things are there just for the base to run. I just don't understand. I mean, it's it's superfluous and I don't need to understand, obviously. But like, you know, like. It seems to me like they spend most of their time drinking and playing pinball, you know, which is also fine, you know, but I don't know. It just really struck me as odd on this particular rewatch because I was like, I don't know what any of these people are doing. It feels like the Shining Hotel has shut down for the season because they're all there. Most of the people that are there are just there to run the facility. You know, there's a couple people there that are like stationed there as like the scientists, Mm -hmm. but they're few and far between from the like the mechanic, the pilot, the cook, the dog handler. Right. And so it's, it's, you know, in in a way, you could also say it's kind of like a shining, which the alien was a shining in space was supposed to be. That was how it was pitched. And you could also say there's a there's an aspect of this that's kind of like clue a little bit. The whodunit. You know, it's, it's yeah, a, a big I feel like it's more Agatha Christie than Clue. Like yes. We talked about earlier. Obviously. Yeah, but it's like I feel like Tim Curry's going to pop out at the end and be like, well, this person was alien at this point. Blah, and, blah, 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 blah. And this is how it really happened. Yes. <laughs> I'm not shouting. <laughs> All right. I am. <clears throat> I really wanted a singing telegram to come to the tour. <laughs> I am your singing telegram. And, then, and then their head turns into <laughs> splits in half. And eats on. <laughs> Love it. No, they just, they just like flamethrower the singing telegram. <laughs> Let's make a remake of this movie, shall we? <laughs> I am the singing telegram. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I think those influences are there. Uh, I don't know if they were like incidental or in the back of the head. I think that was all part of that zeitgeist that was going through everyone's minds at that time. Certainly the studios with the dollars in their eyes. Yeah. You know. But since Halloween, several horror films had repl- replicated many of the scare elements of that film. Something that Carpenter wanted to move away from because it was his own thing, but he wanted to move away from it to do something new very, very purposefully. So he kind of stepped away from his own style and his own, uh, you know, ideas and 
and uh, ground that he had laid with Halloween with the, some of the new tropes that were coming out because of him mm-hmm. and stepped away from that very purposefully. Right. And so he removed scenes from Lancaster's script that had been filmed, such as a body suddenly falling into view, you know, at the Norwegian camp, which he felt were, were too cliched even by that point. Exactly. You know, and so a lot of those like pop up scares, jump scares, Dolby shocks were kind of removed from this movie, which really actually helps the tension because there's not a break in it. No, I completely agree with you. If there were lots of those fucking Dolby shocks in this, it would be way less effective, right? There's really not many. There's There's, a couple. There's like basically one Dolby shock. Maybe two, if you count the paddles on the chest. The defibrillator is, I think, the number one. And the blood test. And the blood test, yes. And that's kind of it. And the blood test is like the most... like a huge build up to a jump scare. And even that, I mean, I think is not as, not as jumpy as the defibrillator scene like that to me. Well, it's like blue balls. Cause they keep trying these fucking right. different things and they have a dramatic moment with like each person that's getting tested, you know? And it's just by the time they actually get to it, it's kind of like matter of fact and kind of like, okay, next one. Cause it's like the fourth or fifth one he tests. And there's still like two more after that. Yeah. And I really want to know <laughs> <laughs> it never shows. Right. So there's a really great like escalation of tension in this. Uh, and I, th- I still think it's one of the best suspense horror films with a slow burn of dread ever made. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I feel like I feel like tension starts completely right away just because you're so unsure of what the fuck is going on. Yeah. You know, and then you continue to not know what the fuck is going on, even though you're like stories like trying to piece things together. I think this movie gives you just enough information at just the right time to continue the story. Like it's perfect. There's things that like Wilford Brimley's character is seeing on that computer screen, like running those simulations. I was like, that's just enough information. It really felt like mother to me from Alien. So I, I mean, it is even when they're playing like <laughs> fucking chess and shit like that. It feels yeah. like mother. But I mean, like I, I feel like it's just just enough information for the audience and for just that character, mm-hmm. right? To keep the story going. No one else knows what he's seen, you know? He just goes insane and they're like, why? But yeah. I mean, this movie is really, really good at doling out the pieces of stuff that you need just to get onto the next scene and create that more like ratchet of tension. It's just perfect. Another thing that helps with that tension is the cinematography, which I love that this is, he was brought over from Halloween as well with John Carpenter's partners, right? And I'm wondering if Sunshine kind of took some cues from this, right? So they used interior warm lights with dark shadows, which much darker shadows than Sunshine for the interior stuff. But we're kind of, uh, every time we're outside, we're kind of starved for that with the exterior blue lights. And then we get, eventually we get these magenta colored flares. It's such a stark contrast in the night that the snow scenes at night with the blue lighting and just everything so cold. And then you get these magenta flares, which makes it look so iconic. I mean, and even like, it doesn't, it doesn't really feel that bright outside. Although all the characters are wearing all these like tinted goggles and things like that. So, you know, in the day scenes yeah, outside. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, you know that it's supposed to be like real fucking bright out there. And I can imagine that it would be. Well, you get snow blindness because the, the snow right. will reflect all of the, um, I know. Yeah. But I mean, like we don't get to see that. We just get to see what they're wearing obviously, but yeah, it's those night scenes and like everything with the flare. Every time they light up a flare, I'm like, this is beautiful. <laughs> Pyro. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and we can't talk about this movie and it's, it's style and it's vibe without discussing Rob Bottin. Oh, of course. Which is kind of his like hail Mary. And he was only like 21, 22 when he, when he did this movie and he worked on it for a full year and he had just come off of other things too. Right. So, I mean, we talked about him recently where he was 
put into the hospital for exhaustion. That was this. Oh, okay. That was this. <laughs> I mentioned that anecdote on, on probably a couple other movies that he's yeah. talking about and how dedicated he is. So Carpenter had imagined it would look like one creature, you know, just like the original, you know, because people aren't thinking out of the box. They're trying to like just build this movie, you know, and it was Botine who suggested that it should be completely changing or constantly changing and able to look like anything. So Botine is a huge part of this movie. As far as like how it was planned, he wasn't just brought on to do the effects as planned. He had a vision and brought that to Carpenter and, you know, the producers and the writers and, and part of the budget and the script was based on Botine's ideas. And I feel like that's obvious. And I love that. I love bringing in those people at, you know, more of the, the beginning so that they can really come to the table with some cool ideas of what's possible and what's not possible. Agreed. Right. So Carpenter initially thought that that idea was too weird. But he was finally won over when, you know, those sketches were done of what the monster could look like mid-transformation. I'm so glad they went with this, too, because I think having having one kind of fucking monster kind of ruins this. And it like yeah. completely destroys all the paranoia they're trying to build, right? Yeah. Because the whole point is to not – you don't know if the person sitting next to you is a thing or not. And also, you don't know what the fucking thing looks like. So, no. what the fuck? And, uh, you know, it's funny. This is a 1982 movie. And you would think that I have a nostalgia boner for it, but I don't because I didn't really see it until like, I want to say 2009 or 10. Really? 2008, maybe. Oh. Like I'd finally gone back and see because I heard it was shit, oh. you know, and it, it didn't really start getting until like around the time that I was seeing it. it was a cult classic. And then I was like, I heard there were rumblings that it was actually really fucking good. And I was trying to get through all these Carpenter movies. Mm-hmm. And so I'd finally, I just, somehow I'd missed it. I think I'd seen parts of it on TV or something. And finally I watched it and I had never seen, even in 2008. I had never seen anything like it. That's just a few years before you and I met. Like four years. Yeah. Yeah. I had never seen anything like it. And I really haven't really seen anything like it since. No, this movie is fucking phenomenal. I remember that movie ending, you know, I'm like in my late twenties or thirties or whatever it was back then. And I'm just like, this is a amazing movie. Like this is, this is what it was instantly one of my favorites. I just loved this movie after the first time I saw it. And I mean, a lot of it has to do with the the effects, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I saw this, I saw this in the late eighties, right? When, I mean, I was just like renting whatever fucking horror movie I could get my hands on. Right. And I happened to just rent the thing. I had no idea what it was. I recognized John Carpenter's name because I'd already seen things like Halloween by the time I was just like nine or 10. Right. Yeah. I'd already seen like Christine was one of my favorite movies. And so like, I have seen the thing many 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 times like i've watched this movie throughout my life yeah and it must have been 26 or 27 when i saw yeah, it the first time it's just amazing yeah so the creature effects were achieved with latex hand puppets animatronics wires and sticks and used a variety of inner materials including mayonnaise creamed corn microwaved bubble gum and ky jelly you could fuck that oh yeah <laughs> I think the melted, like when the, his head, Norris's head is coming off and turning into the spider thing, all mm-hmm. that green stuff is just microwave bubble gum that's dyed green. I mean, thinking outside the box, yeah. you could do things really easily and cheaply. Yeah. So in the chest chomp scene, where his chest turns into the big fucking teeth or whatever, and Dr. Copper attempts to revive Norris with the defibrillator, <laughs> revealing himself as the thing, and Norris thinks chest transformed into a large mouth that severs Copper, Copper's arms. And so Boutine accomplished the scene by recruiting a double amputee and fitting him with prosthetic arms filled with wax bones, rubber veins, and jello. And so the arms were then placed into the practical stomach mouth 
where the mechanical jaws clamped down on them, at which point the actor pulled away, severing the false arms. I know that we have talked about this particular anecdote before on another episode, talking about Boutine, because it is, like, by far, A, one of the most interesting things that he's ever accomplished, using all these things but combined. But he also had to use the mask of the of the guy on the amputee to make it look like him, and I was looking for it, and it still looks amazing. It still looks really close to him. Seamless. Yeah. Pretty seamless. Such a good moment. Such yeah. a good moment in this movie, because it comes out of fucking... Nowhere. nowhere yeah and i remember just being shocked the first time i saw that i did not no same yeah and i love it when horror movies do that because you could almost always anticipate something and that's what's really good about the thing is that you have no idea what's going to happen next really well, it's kind of a bait and switch because you don't expect the thing to be ha- to have a heart attack nope but it's it's literally copying these people so exactly this, you know, narrowed arteries or a heart condition with cholesterol, it's going to get those things too. And so literally it copied something where there was something faulty, you know? And so the guy had a heart attack, even though he was the thing. Well, and I think too, like we're, we're given moments later on in the movie and maybe a little bit before this, like when the dog is transforming, we know that the thing is like, could be lots of different stuff and sort of an amalgam at its core, whatever it's, yeah. it takes on whatever it's been before. Yeah. Right. And I think this is the first time in this movie where we know that like it could, we could destroy another person so quickly as to just turning its a stomach into a fucking mouth. You know what I mean? Like it's just bizarre and outlandish. Well, and it can completely be a corpse, but still be alive. Yeah. Right. You could outwardly dead, but it's still individual parts are still alive. And so it's okay. I can't be this form anymore. So I have to transform. It's going to transform its fucking chest cavity into a goddamn mouth. If it wasn't so easy to kill, you know, with fire and whatnot, I would feel like this villain is. Well, you better burn it to a fucking crisp because that the the first one of the first things to happen is that body they bring back. A piece of it is still alive and goes and, and kills. Yeah, but once it's burned, you know what I mean? Like, you, not everyone has a flamethrower, obviously. Yeah. But I mean, like, for these people, it, they're, it's easy to dispatch once they know that the thing is inside something. Yeah. Right. Which makes it a little more vulnerable than I would like and like a super kind of villain. But you, but I still think it's super neat. You would better really burn it down. Otherwise, the part of it that's, you know, not touching the fire or an inner part of it is still going to be alive and detach itself and go fucking kill someone. So you need a flamethrower, for yeah. sure. So the effect of Norse thing's head detaching the body to save itself took many months of testing before Boutine was satisfied enough to film it. And so the scene involved a fire effect, but the, the crew were una- unaware that the fumes from the rubber foam chemicals inside the puppet were flammable. And so the fire ignited the fumes and created a large fireball that engulfed the entire puppet. Shit. So it suffered only minimal damage somehow, and they had just like repainted it and re like reskinned it and were able to kind of do it again. Um, and so they were able to successfully film that scene, even though the whole thing burst into flame. Shit happens. So uh, stop motion expert Randall William Cook at the, I want to say the beginning of the career, he was about 30 years old, but didn't have many credits before that, I don't, I don't think. But he's better known for like winning Academy Awards for The Lord of the Rings later on when mm-hmm. he transitioned from stop motion. But he developed a sequence for the end of the film where McCready is confronted by that gigantic Blair thing. So he did that stop motion. And so he created a miniature model of the set and filmed wide angle shots of the monster in stop motion. But Carpenter wasn't convinced by the effect and used only a few seconds of it. Thank God, because it's the worst effect of the entire fucking thing. Any kind of stop motion just tells me, just dates, dates it for me. So Boutine was not used to working on large teams or, you know, leading them. (laughs) And so he explained that he would hoard the work and opted to be directly involved in 
most of, if not all of the complicated tasks, spreading himself incredibly thin with only a diet of mostly candy bars and about two hours of sleep any given night, either on the set or in locker rooms on, on the lot for a year, including pre and post production. Jesus Christ. And so near the end of filming, he was 21 years old and he was hospitalized for exhaustion, double pneumonia, bleeding ulcer, all of that caused by his extensive workload. I mean, the things you do for your art, <clears throat> but I mean, it paid off. And didn't win a fucking award for this. Did not. Wasn't even nominated for an Academy Award, which is stupid. Just stupid. But I feel like this would cement his career fully. I mean, everyone knew after the howling that Rob Boutine was special. And yeah. then the thing comes out and I wish that more people like recognize that work immediately. I know it took some time, obviously, but even these critics are like, Oh, it's too much. It's too much, but no, it's not. It's just enough. And it's perfect. So I, I don't know. It pisses yeah. me off. I mean, if you're seeing this in 2022, 2022 eyes and you know, and you're just becoming an adult and you're, or you're a teenager and you're watching this now for the first time, I'm sure some of this looks Muppety and a little wacky. You know, but I think it kind by of large, up. I think it's effective. Yeah, I, I I don't think it looks near as much. There are some things that do look Muppety, but I in by moments, largely, but not yeah, not as a that, whole. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this movie, as far as the effects go, really, really holds up. Okay, if somebody were having an argument with me as to why CG effects were better than like practical, I would be like, no, 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 let's go sit down and watch the thing together right now, mm-hmm. and we'll see how something can hold up over like thirty plus years, right? In fact, the most Muppety thing outside of the stop motion which was not rob boutine was uh one of the dogs splitting its head open Mm -hmm. at first there's like one shot and i was like that's a little muppety that was stan winston he was brought in because rob boutine was like i'm not doing another fucking dog after the howling (laughs) (laughs) and he was overworked so stan winston actually came on and helped and so he did the dog thing and that was a hand puppet (laughs) i mean and even that i think is still fine so it was fine yeah because they really lit it well yeah they lit all of these things really well, and that really matters because they're able to get like the the glisten and the texture of these things, which you can't really do still today with CG. That's hard, you know. Certainly, if you look at 2011's The Thing, which is an abortion. Well, we're going to look at it in just a little bit. So I don't know. We we can't talk enough about Rob Bottin, but we have to we have to stop at some point so we can talk about any more Conan. <laughs> God, yeah. So to me, the, the music is this like is really interesting for me here. It's always been interesting to me here because Ennio Morricone is known for his westerns, right? All the spaghetti westerns and like and all that stuff. And uh, later on, the H- Hateful Eight, mm-hmm. right? And which he finally won an Academy Award for, you know, before he died, which is amazing. But this this by and large, this soundtrack sounds like a John Carpenter score. Parts of it do. I did some research, and you know, obviously. It's in the style of John Carpenter, but it's very purposefully in the style of John Carpenter. John Carpenter was kind of em- embarrassed of his own musical ability. And, you know, and so he kind of gave this film to Ennio Morricone and said, here are a couple of tracks here to Escape from New York and something from Halloween. So for some of these scenes, I want s- some synthesizer, but I can't do orchestral. But I want some orchestral here. I want a European style score, um, but mixed with synthesizer. So like, here's some of my work and you do your thing and they pushed it on him and they didn't collaborate basically at all. And so Ennio Morricone basically had this film and, and did it, you know, and then um, John Carpenter later came in and filled some of the, when he was editing and filled some things with like some ambient stuff of his own. So this is like a collaboration separated with no communication to make this score, which is really interesting. So it's Ennio Morricone trying to be like John Carpenter and John Carpenter 
adding atmospherics, you know, uh, and I remember just thinking like this, this must have been John Carpenter, but then I saw Ennio Morricone's name and I was shocked, but then listening to it very purposefully and in isolation, as I always do while I'm doing the notes and research, a lot of it, the orchestral parts are reminiscent of Alien, Jerry Goldsmith's work for 1979's Alien. There's a lot of themes in there that are very reminiscent of it. So that's also another tie back to Alien to me. And yeah, I can see that as well. Also, I feel like with John Carpenter adding some of his own stuff in there, it works in a seamless kind of sense. You know what I mean? Like it all sort of fits together, yeah. right? I mean, I I wouldn't be able to tell a difference. And I feel like as far as like Morricone goes, obviously people like Carpenter already knew about his work and were super impressed by it and loved yeah. it, right? Which continued on into like Eli Roth, like bringing him in for like Cabin Fever and stuff like that. Like this man is, was, um, really highly regarded in a genre like community, right? So I, I feel like using him as the, the composer really, really fits. And it, it's good. It's an interesting like, choice. Because yeah. it was not an obvious choice at all. And as like John Carpenter doesn't really have a score like this in any of his other movies. Of course, again, I'm happy with Jerry Goldsmith's work in 1982 because he did Poltergeist. <laughs> it's true. So, you know, interesting how it all kind of fits together and all the ties. We also have to talk about that famous poster. I love this poster. Yeah. And so this is the, the original poster is the guy in the big snow mask or snow hood or whatever. And it's like this light of rays coming out of the, of the mm-hmm. hood it almost has nothing to do with the movie. And Which is good. yeah. So Drew Struzan was contacted having not really known anything about the movie other than it was a new interpretation of the story and just did the poster in 24 hours based only on a briefing, not knowing really anything else. And so he did it and it's iconic and it's, it's been listed as we, I think we listed somewhere else in the accolades that it was like listed as one of like the top 50 movie posters of all time. That's right. It was, it was up in that uh, list. So of course, Juice Druzen is known for doing more than 150 movie posters, including the Shawshank Redemption, Blade Runner, Mallrats, as well as films like Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, the Star Wars films, kind of like the illustrated kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, all of that stuff. I think he even did like Lord of the parts of like Lord of the Rings posters and, you know, but these more simplistic ones from the eighties are some of the best. I really, really enjoy this poster a lot because it tells you nothing about what this movie is. But some of my favorite posters for this are actually done by artists afterwards. And, uh, the Alamo draft house that we have, um, in central DFW here Mm -hmm. has a whole hallway devoted to the thing posters that people have done. And some of them are amazing and I've taken pictures of all of them and I, I absolutely love them. You know, so lots of interpretation. I also love the 2011 poster. It's just the thing in a black space. And then in the color inside the thing is actually a scene of the guy with his fingers up. Right. It's very reminiscent of this particular poster for this movie. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the best thing about that fucking movie. Yeah. Actually, it's like the the fucking DVD art and poster for that. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the themes a little bit? Yes. Because the themes of the themes. There are themes abound in this. Obviously, it's paranoia and mistrust. Paranoia being the operative word. Yes, I feel like that is completely obvious to anybody watching this movie, right? If you don't, if you don't feel a sense of mis- uh, mistrust and paranoia while watching this, then you're just not getting it. Yeah, it's the whole point, and it's not really about like corporatism or expendability or anything like that. That's also a layer in Alien, but it's about neighbors turning on themselves and institutions, even a little bit. Yeah, because the people representing institutions. There are lines in this movie, like you know, Gary is like, "But I've known him for years. He is my friend." Yeah, right. It's just simple things like that that is just like passing dialogue right 
uh, right before they burn a man to death. You know, I mean, like there's so much and it's just, it's there, it's palpable and it's obvious, but in, in really like good ways, you know? So, and there's a lot of people that still say a lot of this paranoia and mistrust is due to like an allegory or allusions to the cold war tensions with like mutually assured destruction and things like that. I don't see that. I don't, I think this is pure paranoia about kind of in a more humanistic way versus anything that's about current politics. I agree. I don't, I don't I think see the first lot. movie was, I think definitely the first movie had some of that, but even parts then, of it, I guess I, I even, cause we just talked about that last week and I didn't see a whole lot of yeah. like, like early rumblings of cold war stuff in that movie. You know, I, there are lots and lots of horror movies and science fiction movies that you could very easily say like, this is about the cold war. I don't think the thing is one of them. I don't think the thing from another world is one of them. The book maybe, but that was written way, way before the cold war. Yeah. So, I mean, even things like invasion of the body snatchers is way more aligned to that. Yes. So I, yeah. I feel Red like, and all that. I feel like you're right. Like this, this paranoia is a much more like broad, you know, or even more focused on just the nature of you know, kind of like the mist a little bit, you know, but I mean, this is, this ties into much more of a cosmic horror. The mist is even more humanistic than this one. You know, it's, it's about the concept of your identity and being able to lose it and not being able to trust the people you know and love. Well, that's true because in the mist, no one is becoming monsters and monsters are external to everything else that's happening. Yeah. Right. But it's, it's a, it's a meditation on paranoia clearly and mistrust. Yes. And I think that's the beginning and end of it, but there is a huge, there's been a lot of work on done on theories of the themes of this about being a man and masculinity. Okay. Which I thought was interesting and weird enough to go over because it's like, I don't really see it, but it might be an interesting conversation nonetheless okay so the atlantic's noah uh berlatsky said that unlike typical horror genre films women are completely excluded in this movie which you know obviously but i think that's to strip down the men to their basic parts so there's no other layer of posturing right yeah it sounds wrong to say but like throwing a woman into the mix in this like i think a lot of audience members would assume that somebody should be romantically involved with her and so on and so forth and you don't need that part of the story like i said it's more of a stripped down version of alien even because you know uh the women in in alien aren't super like sexualized and it's more like an equalization until the very end you know Mm -hmm. so I don't know. There's that's a whole discussion that we talked about in that deep dive. So if you're interested in Alien, go look that up. But at length we talked about. That. Yes, Noah Berlaski from the Atlantic also mentioned that because the women are excluded, this allows the thing to be identified as a fear of not being a man or being homosexual. Mm. I mean, some of the ways it attacks people, like it's, it's almost like male rape from Alien in a way. You know. Well, I think just like their faces and, and, you know, the idea of something entering a body, yeah. you know what I mean, is enough for that kind of like, but I think thought. also that's beside the point. I mean, the first thing we see that way is the dogs and stuff like that. You yeah. Know? So it's, it's kind of incidental. And then vices, Patrick Marlboro considered the thing to be a scathing examination of manliness, noting that identifying the thing requires intimacy, confession, and empathy to out the creature. But, quote unquote, male frailty prevents this as an option. So trapped by pride and stunted emotional growth, the men are unable to confront the truth out of the fear of embarrassment or exposure. That's tough. You know, there's this moment where they're going on about the keys, who who got the keys, who had access to the keys. 
to destroy the blood bank, right? And there's a lot of like, oh, I don't want to be the one that's viewed as the thing. I don't want to be the one that's viewed as the person that destroyed all of our, you know, I don't want to be the one that enabled the thing, you know? And so there's a little bit of that in this, but I think that's also kind of incidental and part of the paranoia. Well, and also I feel like some of these characters flat out say, I can see how you wouldn't want me to be in charge anymore. And they relinquish control on their own. They don't, it's not stolen from them. Like he is saying here, I can see why you would not want to be in charge. Here's the shit. Yeah. Right. And then the, like the real like test of manliness comes in as to who's going to pick up the reins. You know what I mean? It goes both ways in this movie. I feel like some of these men are willing to not be so fucking masculine to save the situation. Maybe Childs is the only one that was just like, you're not going to test me or whatever for half a second, you know, but it's at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. The mm-hmm. thing, it doesn't matter how empathetic or intimate you are. The thing can be that way too. Yeah. It's, it's that's why I'm thinking this is again this is incidental because the nature of the thing is to be an exact copy. Yeah, I don't. I'm not really. I'm not really getting this particular yeah. like. But it's this whole thing. Like it's it's all about manliness, and that's I don't. I don't really see. Like there's something to to be seen here or learned maybe, but it's not. I don't think it's written in. I feel like there are a, a lot more horror movies or genre movies that deal with the topic of like what it means to be a man or like to lose your masculinity or have it compromised in some sort of way, way more than this one does. And this is coming from a movie that has like an all male cast. So Berlatsky noted that McCready avoids emotional attachments at all and is the most paranoid, allowing him to be the hero. And this detachment works against him in the finale which leaves McCready locked in a futile mistrust with Childs, each not really knowing the other. Again, incidental. I would say that a lot of these characters, well, I don't, I mean, no, you're right. Smart and even, even tempered, right. And even McCready says we need someone a little bit more even tempered Childs, you know? And so it's even temperedness that allows survivability, not the fact they have no emotional attachments. I feel like McCready and Childs are probably the most like standoffish of the entire group. Right. And so it just makes them. And the most uber masculine in a way. Right. They so are, I, both I of them s- are. But again, incidentally, like I, I don't see this as being a theme of the movie. I don't either. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like everybody else has already like established a relationship with some of the people they live with, except for these two people. And let's not forget that McCready, like we said, lives away from everybody else in his own fucking shack yep. and nobody else does, you know? So there's already that, but I, I don't think that that has to do with his masculinity either. I think it's just who he is as a person. He just likes to sit and drink by himself and play chess with mother. Yeah. <laughs> so further illusions have been drawn between the blood test scene and the epidemic of HIV at the time, which could be identified only by a blood test. I don't see that either. It's a little early. Yeah. I think it's way too early for that. I think if this movie were made somewhere in the, the later eighties, yeah, then, there's an argument yeah. that maybe like by 84, 85, it would have been more of a pointed thing because this, this movie was being written in the late seventies. Yeah. I, I really don't see that at all. Mid I mean, to late seventies. I mean, you could, you could read whatever you want into movies. It's all subjective anyway, you know, but like I, I, I never thought that there. And again, just like we start, talked about, like we've there's, there are other horror movies that are about masculinity and what it's like to lose it. There are lots of horror movies that have to do with like the HIV epidemic as an allegory. And this is just not one of them to me. Well, you know, in a world where movies get bigger than the, some of their parts in culture, you know, there's always, there's always a threat of them becoming overanalyzed. And I think that is the case here. I guess. Yeah. I mean, in this particular sense, like the conversations that we were just having about all this, yeah, I would see this as a big overanalyzation of this particular movie. Yeah. Right? And we're going to close the gap on this in a little bit because I have some thoughts on a lot of the, you know, critics aren't the only ones that are overanalyzing this. Fans are too. Okay. 
right? So obviously there's another theme, right? Cosmic horror, the unknowable motive, self-identity, free will. Nerdists Kyle Anderson and Strange Horizons Oren Gray analyze the thing as an example of author H.P. Lovecraft's cosmic horror, which I would somewhat agree with. Mm-hmm. Anderson's analysis includes the idea of cosmic horror in large part coming from, quote, the fear of being overtaken, end quote, connecting it to Lovecraft's xenophobia and Blair's character arc of becoming what he most fears. I can see that. Yeah, it's cosmic horror. It is. I mean, it is definitely. I mean, like it just is the fear of the unknowable, the fear of the other. There is no motive here other than just, you know, it wanting to be alive and spreading. Yeah. Just like, just like any other being. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Let's talk about some of the moments and quotes that we like from this movie. (laughs) There's a lot. (laughs) The first thing is like the hunting dogs. Right. And that's one of the thing you always will spot someone that has not seen this movie or has because everyone who has not seen this movie is like, don't kill the dog. Don't kill the dog. What are you doing? And then everyone who has seen this movie is like, kill it, kill it, kill it. <laughs> it's one of the few moments after, I mean, obviously not the first time I saw it, but every time afterward, I'm like, it's the only time I've ever wanted a dog to be dead. Although I don't because I like what happens when the dog doesn't die. For real. You know, when I'm first watching this movie, it's like, it starts off that way. It starts off that off putting. They're trying to kill a fucking dog. And they're like, Why? What are you doing? Who are these people? Are they going to like cook it? But also they're really bad at killing that dog. I mean, like there are moments when that helicopter is literally right above that animal and they just can't shoot it. It's like these poor Norwegian scientists that don't know how to shoot a fucking gun and obviously don't know how to throw a grenade because he fucking kills his his pilot and uh, the helicopter. Did you see? And I don't don't know if I made this up or not, but I swear to God, I saw it last night when the helicopter lands. He has the grenade in his hands and the canister says thermite on it. Hmm. And I was just like, oh. Yeah. Another little callback there. Love it. Yeah. But they're really bad at killing dogs. And this is really good. The next thing I, I thought of was like this really good scene where it's just like really good character establishment and also foreshadowing with McCready being a bad loser mm-hmm. and the chess. Like he will blow up the fucking machine. He pours whiskey into the computer when he loses the chess. <laughs> Cheating bitch or whatever. I mean, it really sets up that character a lot in that particular moment. Yeah. A, that he's he's smart. He's playing chess, first yeah. of all. Let's not forget that. But he just cannot. He he cannot lose. He has to be number one all the time. A little curmudgeon Yeah. And he might, might have a little bit of an alcohol problem because like literally every scene that he's in, he's drinking that whiskey. I mean, I'd probably form a really deep relationship with him. <laughs> <laughs> I can fix him. <laughs> The next thing I, I wrote down was uh, investigating the Norwegian camp because I remember watching this for the first time and that being one of the scariest scenes because you're not sure what's going to happen. You know something happened there. The thing is like torn apart. There's like corpses and frozen blood coming out of people's veins and shit, you know, and eventually you find that body. But like while they're, you know, it's it's like um, going down the hallways expecting an alien to pop out, you know, or something like that. And as on rewatch, you, you know that they don't that nothing happens. But right. The first time you watch this, it's one of the scariest scenes. It is. It's still one of the scariest scenes just because nothing really happens in it. You know what I mean? It's like rant, it's a whole thing. It's just part of the ramping, the slow burn and ramping up of the tension in this movie. Nothing is answered from that trip to the base. Right. And only the, more questions, only more questions. And the thing is, I mean, like having seen the original, right. The 1951 version, when you see that block of ice that looks like a body was melted out of it or removed from it, you know, but they don't really talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. like if you have seen these other things and you have those references, then yes, it makes some sense. The first time I saw the thing, I had not seen the thing from another world. I had no idea. You mean so questions were not being answered at all, yeah. but it's super effective and very, very tense and very, very scary for those reasons. They also kind of watch those videos 
of the Norwegian. They're standing in a circle around the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing. So there's another homage to the original film. I think a lot of the homage to the original film happens in this from those Norwegian people. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's that's it. That's where they threw it in there. And then, of course, the body. We get like this this kind of camera that's circling them as they're looking at the body and doing like that autopsy. Right. And you're gross. just seeing that's just showing you the level of makeup and special effects that are in this movie. And I just remember watching this for the first time and being like, I have never seen anything like this. And I fucking love it. <laughs> yeah. I really, really love that body. I love the fucking, the two face thing, like the splitting parts of it. Right. It just yeah. looks fucking gnarly and, and it's like static, right? It doesn't move. You know what I mean? Which is impressive for something to be that intimidating and scary and not be jumping or moving around or doing anything but it's also dripping and it's also steaming and so you're not sure if it's steaming because it was on fire or because it's so cold but it's also dripping and it's oozy and it's greasy and it's nasty and the eyes look real the eyes yeah. look like it's alive like they're all looks, looking at you yeah you know what i mean like it's just super super effective it's gross but uh and then we have the dog transformation which is iconic yeah i mean like it's I like parts of that when the little tentacles are coming out of the fur of the body or whatever. I'm just like, you know, but like, I, I like that scene. The The creature transformation is less fun for me. Like it's, it's the most, one of the most hokey probably if I, nothing's hokey, but it, of levels of hokeyness, it's that probably would be one the of the one. most, yeah. you know, but I like some of the, like the reverse shots they do, like the, like the little tentacles going into the dog. And it's, it's also utilizing in every scene that it's, that it's in It's utilizing different tactics. Right. It is always changing, which I love because it's spraying the dog with something yeah. that kind of calms it down and like gets it covered in like this almost like Some a sort co- of like venom co- cocoon. Yeah. You know, and then it's tentacling it and it doesn't do that again. Right. And so it's doing something slightly different every single time the thing is on screen. And I love that. And even this moment is really good for like tension because fucking doggies. Well, the dog, the dog thing. Right. Knows it, it, it's been a dog for a little bit now, right? That's what it understands like how a dog thinks. It, it doesn't, it also doesn't want to reveal itself too quickly, yeah. right? And so it trepidatiously walks into that kennel, you know, and like you know how dogs interact with each other, and you could like look at it and see like that being at that moment is just like, I'm gonna have to fucking do something, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And it's just another fucking layer of tension because you're waiting for the dogs to sort of attack it or realize that it's not what it's supposed to be. And then it turns out to be the other way around. You know what I mean? It's good. Yeah. And even the dogs can't tell the difference with it at first. It starts making that noise and transforming. And that's when the dogs start barking and like growling and shit or like cowering away, you know? But I feel like, I feel like that creature knows walking into that situation. It wouldn't be too long before those dogs would have sussed it out. Yeah. You know, the next thing I wrote down is the Bennings. So that's the guy that escapes. He's taken over. Windows catches him mm-hmm. being taken over with tentacles around him or whatever from the body that they brought back. Right. Which they hadn't destroyed yet. It's like mid-transformation. And he breaks through the window or whatever. And they all kind of, he had already kind of redressed himself, but he's not quite done transforming. And he's got those big like alien hands, fingers that are mutated. They're not just big fingers. They're mutated hands. And then it yells in that really creepy alien scream that echoes everywhere. And uh, then, of course, we got the spider head. You got to be fucking kidding. Yes, <laughs> which is always good. I like this. This is all tied head. to that heart attack thing, right? Uh, and then the blood test, you know, with the tie to this fucking couch line that I love so much. I love that line in this movie. My fucking God. Like, gentlemen, I know you've been through a lot, but I do not, I do not want to spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> <laughs> and we get Blair putting his fingers 
onto Gary and his his fingers merging with his, his fucking face. face. And it's such a good effect oh, today. It's it. seamless. Just love it. And then, of course, he, he merges. And, and before he can transform into or split apart into two separate things, they merge into this giant Muppet monster. Which I'm still fine with, too. I am because there's less of it than I remember. There's only about a second of seeing the stop motion. And then it goes to the practical again. I mean, it's so fine. And of course we get our ending, our ambiguous ending, which I, you know, we've already said we love. Yeah. And I would not have it any other way. Those other endings can suck it. So finally we get to our theories and questions, which we have to acknowledge because everyone seems to have them. And there's this, you know, large passionate fan base that keeps bringing these up on the interwebs and YouTube videos and fan theories and short stories and fanfic and everything else that you can think of to analyze this movie and have their own theories and kill lists and kill orders and everything else. Um, you know, but the first thing I want to really get out of the way is why, why did this fail critically upon release? The reasons for that are Legion for sure. I, I think it was just like the perfect storm for this movie to fail. Right. I don't know. What are, what are some of your thoughts? And we'll see if I agree with them or not. I, I don't really, I think it's all of it. You know, like there was this, the theory that it's nihilistic, it's depressing. Uh, and it has a nihilistic and depressing viewpoint when the U S was in the middle of a recession, which was cited as being the most severe since world war two. I oftentimes, I mean, I know that nihilistic and depressing movies, especially ones that have an ending that's very depressing, right. Don't perform well, even yeah. today. I mean, like, let's face it. Americans like everything tied up in a fucking bow. People don't like the downer endings. And I feel like, Word of mouth is very important sometimes when it comes to genre film. And if you have people, even people who like genre film coming and saying like it's depressing or it's too nihilistic or something like that, I think that that would affect its it would affect its box office. And I certainly feel like critics at the time, you know, like they panned it. And they talked about its nihilism. And I don't think that did it any favors. But I feel like a lot of the ones that kind of shit talked it. We're also having nostalgia boners for the original, like Roger Ebert famously like shit on this film and uh, later said the scariest moment of his childhood was watching the original. And so I feel like my personal theory, which hasn't really been documented, but if you think about it, there's a lot of nostalgia boners out there and reverence for the original material that everyone grew up with. All these critics grew up with like in the 50s and 60s. Well, I think you could easily say that like by the time 2011s came out, even though you had seen it maybe like four or five years beforehand, like this, this version of it, like you had already created some sort of boner for this movie and that completely affected how you viewed 2011 yeah but also that's a really shitty movie and well there's people that are much younger than us that think that the new one is great yeah and and that is fine you know everyone is entitled to their own opinion on things and they see that first and then they go back and see 1982 and they're like oh this is hokey or whatever like that and i'm just like fuck you i mean and while i agree (laughs) with that too i would totally say that to them and i do have a raging boner for this movie and i have for a big chunk of my life right it's just one of my favorite horror movies so i get that and i get how people can have their boners for this original one the 1951 version because carpenter certainly did you know what i mean so if carpenter can sort of like jerk his boner off and then go make Make his own movie then we should be able to do the same yeah you know so but I, I feel like i feel like that nostalgia for the 1951 version probably did not play as much on like a a box office draw right but possibly on a critical pan yeah i also wonder if it was too early for this level of body horror and i, I wrote that it was probably not given the success of alien but a- even aliens a little bit understated like you get that face hugger scene so they've, they've got this quick 
you know, uh, fast, shocking scenes, the, the chest burster scene, which was, you know, super infamous for the time in theaters. But they're kind of short and staccato throughout the film versus in this, it's in your face, in camera, a long period of time, multiple times through the movie. And I wonder if it's a little too early for that for a big studio film. Um, I feel I still feel like like by, by the time that this came out, by the time that Alien came out, we had already seen things like Shivers, um, Rabbit, The Brood, right, from Cronenberg. But these were big studio They were still releases. studio films. Okay. I mean, they were they were released widely, right? Um, they may not have been as popular as some of these things. So I, I feel like this may be one of the first times that we we're given this level of body horror to like a maybe a very, very large audience. But I feel like people, the people who would have gone to see the thing at all or like just just for the thing being the thing yeah. would have been at least a little aware of Cronenberg. Well, I think it was a, it was a perfect storm to make this movie so awesome, but at the same time, it was also kind of a perfect storm to critically pan it yeah. at the time because of the nihilism during, you know, recession and cold war and all that, mm-hmm. the changing times, Reagan revolution, the original nostalgia boner for the original film that all these critics had and many moviegoers did. Uh, maybe too early for this level of body horror, you know? And so I think all of those things kind of wrapped together, maybe the marketing that was a little bit too general audience for what it was, you know, all of these things kind of impacted that. And I I think that's important to not blame any single thing. I feel like the number one thing when talking about like the, the financial failure of this particular movie, right. Which I tend to focus on. I mean, cause I mean like critics, as we have talked about, change their minds a lot. People have gone back and said I was wrong about something. We have. But you know what you can't go back and do? Go make more money. You know, you can't, you you can continue to make money, but everyone looks at that initial release, right? As we talk about like it's like it's box office jaw the year that it was released, right? And I feel like this movie didn't stand a fucking chance in 1982 with everything that was happening around its release, right? I feel like maybe if they had changed its release date just a little bit, it might be a completely different story. But in the summer when E.T. and Poltergeist are playing, right, there was no way. There was no way in the world that it was going to be able to to perform the way that people would expect it to. The impact on John Carpenter was immediate. Yeah. He lost his job directing the 1984 science fiction horror film Firestarter. Which still feels like a Carpenter movie, though. Because the thing's poor performance and his previous successes had gained him a multiple film contract at Universal. But the studio actually opted out to buy him, buy him out of the contract instead. They didn't want him. And so he's quoted to say, quote, I was called a pornographer of violence. I had no idea it would be received that way. The thing was just too strong for that time. I knew it was going to be strong, but I didn't think it would be too strong. I didn't take the public's taste into consideration. Well, just a couple of years later, John, the public embraced yeah. your movie. And the thing is that John Carpenter went on to make other movies for Universal. You yeah. know what I mean? I we mean, did. so. So the next question is, what is the thing? One thing I was thinking about while I was watching this <clears> was like, it was an interesting question for me is, do people take an over by the thing in all cases know that they are the thing right because in several cases like the guy denies leadership that's one thing that's debatable and then the there's a scene where the spider head is going out and the only person to see it is one that's literally the next thing to be discovered and he turns around and says you got to be fucking kidding and draws attention to it and i'm wondering if this thing operates in such a way where there might be like some sort of agent that knows what it's doing at any given time or it just takes over there's like two like a dual consciousness kind of situation where it lets you kind of autopilot as a perfect copy in every fucking way down to cholesterol including thought patterns and personality you know the parenthetical soul i don't fucking know 
enough to really convince down to the tiniest minute difference until it needs to act, which is even scarier for me. I feel like they know the thing. I don't, like, I, I'm not convinced of that because several times they kind of act, you know, so human in those situations and they're just as shocked or just as scared. You know, it's either mimicking to at what point is mimicry a hundred percent to where it almost doesn't matter that it's real. Well, if the thing's ultimate end goal is to survive, right. Then, and if you could, if you go could the wheel enough to do that, if you well, or just be completely in control of it and be like, you know what? I want to live. This other thing that's a thing is clearly dead and the head is crawling around. So I'm going to let them go focus on that and take the attention off me since we just had this whole fucking blood test thing. You know what I mean? Like you can be conniving in ways More human just human. for your survival. Yes. You know what I mean? And so it's just like, I think that deep down, the thing is the thing. And once it has taken you over, it may have parts of your personality, which I do think is still true. Right. And you can't just like mimic. But I think like deep down, it knows it's the thing and all it wants to do is survive. So, it's scary either way. In whatever fucking way it can do it. And again, it doesn't matter. But I, again, yeah. I mean, like, and I don't want to know, but the, the thought that it, it could copy you so well that it could create some sort of dual consciousness where it can just let you be a human. It's copy of you be, be itself and that you wouldn't even know you are the thing. That's even scarier to me in some weird way that loss of of self i think it's really fun to conjecture on this stuff you know what i mean just because but i think it's all interesting i just i think we keep coming back to the same conclusion though is that like yes we can raise all these questions but do we want the answer like do we really no you know it's fun to think about yes and that's part of the fun of this movie yeah you gotta you know especially seeing it on separate watches because it takes many watches to really keep track of who's the thing at any given point there's enough characters for that to be fun and realizing it more this time and more and more every time I watch it, I'm able to see people's reactions and lines and everything else. But, you know, that brings us to the ending again. Mm-hmm. What is your theory? Is uh, is Childs a thing? I think so. Yeah, I, I could go either way, but I, I tend to think that it's possible. But I feel like he would have almost instantly attacked him. Mm, I don't think that's the thing, Zimmo. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, was, uh, was McCready a thing? Yeah. Even though he somehow in the bowels of the station where the entire fucking station blew up. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that child is a thing, but not McCready. Cause technically the thing could make multiple copies of the same person. Maybe it's just, I don't want McCready to be a thing. You know what I mean? Me too. I, I think that's just it. You know what I mean? Like even like most other people, I'm, I'm okay with the bleak ending. You know what I mean? But I still like a hero. Yeah. And again, doesn't matter. Right. No. The whole point is the, is paranoia and an ambiguous ending. That is the exclamation point on the point of paranoia. And I'm kind of glad that this movie didn't succeed on its initial run, right? Both critically and like financially, because the worst thing that could happen to this fucking movie is a goddamn sequel. So, I mean, we're we're so lucky that it didn't make gobbledygillions of dollars because then someone would have come to make a sequel and answer these questions that we're talking about and fucking ruin it. Yeah, I wouldn't mind like um uh you know, like a mini series like sort of like the terror which you still haven't seen you know that's um like six episodes or less that is based on the larger frozen hell version of who goes there 
that would be just like a retelling, original return to the restore versus versus trying to be a, a remake or a sequel or a prequel to an existing. What? That's just a different version of source material. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's that's fine. And like even remakes, I'm okay with. You know what I mean? Like when when the 2011 version came out, I wanted to see it as much as I like this movie. But it's not like everyone gets mad online when you call it a remake, and I'm like, if they didn't want you to think of it as a remake, they shouldn't have called it the fucking thing. Right. Well, and the movie's plot is very very similar to this one. You know what I mean? I'm mean, like prequel, remake, whatever the fuck it they is. They could have called it Frozen Hell or, you know, a riff of it, or they could have called it, you know, like um, the Norwegian Camp or what, something like that, you know? They what I don't want to see same fucking title. is someone make a movie that happens immediately after the end of this one. You yeah. know what I mean? I, I, well, I like the ambiguously bleak ending and I don't need someone to answer that question. And I'm so glad that no one has done it, really, because I would be furious. Well, we'll see what Blumhouse does. Christ. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's a lot of fan theories like you can tell like the, who the thing is throughout the movie by light reflected in their eyes or visible breath. And that's not true. It's blatantly false. You can see breath on uh, childs at the end. You can see light in the eyes of several people that are the things. So that's false. Um, there's a lot of other weird theories, too, that people are just starting to get a little over over anxious about over overanalyzing. And I think they can calm down because really the whole point of this was just constructed to be ambiguous. They didn't want to to pay so much attention to continuity that it would tee you off on who is who and and, and when, right? It was purposely kept to the to where they wouldn't do that, so that would be better, even better mimicry and even even more tension, right? And so there may not be a blueprint or a plan of who is what, when, or why or how, you know. And that's the whole point of the movie. And so you're just supposed to kind of enjoy it for its theme and for the meaning of it, not overanalyze in such a way that I have started to do. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like anytime there's a movie that has a kind of a rabid fan base, right. People are going to come up with these things. Yeah. Regardless. I'm just saying like you, you, at some point you're missing the point, you know? And so just to have fun with it, ask those questions, think about it. It's fun to think about, but you know, don't put yourself out because the filmmakers didn't put themselves out with it because that would have been counter to the point. Agreed. Now Carpenter has teased quote, now, I do know in the end who the thing is, but I can't tell you. He doesn't fucking know. No. <laughs> He's full of shit. J&B. There are people that are so hardcore about this. Like I was looking at IMDb and people are putting in false quotes from Carpenter that he never said to try and, and get their theories at more credible ground. And it's just bullshit. So you just know. let it go, everybody, and have a good time and watch this movie because it's yeah. so enjoyable and so much fun. Here, here. Speaking of fun, do you have some fun facts? I do. So unused music composed for this film was later used by Ennio Morricone and Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight from 2015. And ironically, Morricone's Thing score was nominated for a Razzie for worst score, <laughs> while a score for Hateful Eight won him as an Oscar. <laughs> what a difference two decades makes, right? Mm. Come on. Well, three, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the only female presence in the film is the voice of McCready's chess computer voiced by Carpenter's then wife, Adrian Barbeau. You know what? I feel like I fucking knew this. And so when I you thought were ta- you were going to get me <laughs> and you were talking about there's a woman cast in it, I was just like, no, there's not. But yeah, I swear to God, I've heard this before. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes. Okay. All right. So the Norwegian passenger, when he's speaking Norwegian to them, you know, yelling it, he's actually speaking it. And he's saying, get the hell out of there. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots, as he's shooting. Um, which is just another reminder that. People should speak lots of languages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll get right on learning Norwegian. Could have saved a life. Many, many. It could have. And a structure. Right. 
So stunt coordinator Dick Warlock, who also, you know, played some Michael Myers in Halloween. What a cool name. Also had a minor role in this film, appearing off screen as the silhouette figure during the scene where the dog thing enters one of the researchers' living quarters whilst roaming around the base. What? He purposefully did not want the silhouette because the dog enters the, is looking down the hallway trying to find a victim. Mm-hmm. Goes into the room and all you see is the silhouette of a man. You're not sure which person it is. You're right. looking at the hairline. You're like, you, can, you can't really tell. He purposefully used someone that was not in the principal cast to make it even more ambiguous. Smart. Again. You cannot tell who it is. And it's actually Michael Myers. <laughs> the shape. <laughs> it's the shape. The shape of the shadow is the shape. The silhouette. And he played the silhouette. <laughs> the silhouette. Yes. At some point, he probably wants to be on camera for real. Huh. It'll be more than a shape or a shadow or a silhouette. No, he's fine. Yeah. He's fine with that. So it took Kurt Russell about a year to grow his hair out and beard for the role. He looks good in that, too. Mm-hmm. He's a real sad boy with his hair and beard. He does. I'm down with it. Keith David broke his hand in a car accident the day before he was to begin shooting. So he attended filming the next day. But when Carpenter Frank is all swollen hand, they sent him right to the hospital where it was punctured with two pins. He returned wearing a surgical glove beneath a black glove that was painted to resemble his complexion. His left hand is not seen for the first half of the movie. Jesus Christ. The end explosion of the base took eight hours to set up and required the camera assistants to stand inside the set with explosive, which were activated remotely. The assistants then had to run to a safe distance while seven cameras captured the base's destruction. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I don't think they'd be allowed to do that today. No. My God. This is two different thing movies where I'm just sure that someone's going to be fucking destroyed. Like yeah, someone's going to lose a life or a limb. <laughs> so the destroy set was then, of course, used for the Norwegian camp to save on costs. And was effective. It was. So a scene with McCready. This is my last one. Okay. Uh, was cut where he is absentmindedly inflating a blow-up doll in the background <laughs> while watching the Norwegian tapes. <laughs> I think that fits more with fucking Kurt Russell as a person than it does with Bikini as a character. I mean, but like, <laughs> I love all of them watching that that scene where he's just like absentmindedly in the back in the background, <laughs> blowing up in a blow up doll. I love it. I wish they would have kept that in there. Actually, but those were right. fun. Yeah. Um, and I feel like there were a lot of fun facts throughout this episode. Really, not just at the end, but we have to ask some questions, and uh, we're gonna start with, I guess, the most obvious, right? Uh, because I think you can call this movie multi-genre. Like, is this a horror movie? Yes. Yeah, clearly, <laughs> right? I think I think this is more of a horror film than a science fiction film. Like, honestly, but it can be both equally. Yeah, I mean, I just they separate. They're separate concepts. I mean, yeah, one is more to me. One is more setting, and one is more feeling. You know, this is definitely a horror movie. Yeah. Were you scared watching the thing? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm always scared watching the thing. Like deep down, I can just—I mean, the paranoia is fucking palpable. Certainly, the first time, nothing beats the first time watching it but. for for any movie. Yeah, you know. But I feel like this is one of those rare examples of movies where I can sort of like feel something very, very similar to the first time watching it. Right? Like I still feel levels of paranoia, and I think that has to do with the filmmaking itself, the movie itself, the the acting. Like this is a really, really good movie, and it works on those levels and i think that's rare if you're going to watch something that is like as you know has so much paranoia as this movie does and to still feel that on subsequent watches i think that's pretty fucking masterful Uh, out of five stars what would you rate the thing i'm giving it a five star i've been waffling with the 4.5 because there's some moments that don't cut it as much for me like the beginning spaceship scene you know or some 
some of the effects at the end with the stop motion or whatever, but it's like, to me, five stars, almost perfect, perfect or almost perfect. And I'm not really sure how I would do different with the, the technology back in the day. You know what I mean? Like if I could do any better or had any of the better ideas, you know, and sometimes with these movies that are really, really good, I do have some ideas, you know, with 2020 hindsight of how it could have been done better. This one, I really done as much. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really a perfection of, of ramping up tension and suspension in a, a horror movie. Suspense in a horror movie. I give this movie five stars. I yeah. think this is a perfect film for lots of reasons. I mean, for everything that we've talked about as far as like tension and paranoia, I think that the special effects and practical effects in this movie are fucking astounding. And I think that has to be taken into account when you're giving a rating. I think that the acting in this movie is really, really good. I think the direction's excellent. Like every single part of this movie works together to create a really fantastic five-star whole. Like the thing like the thing and and like i said last week when like you know giving a little preview to this particular movie when people ask me like hey i'm not familiar with a lot of horror movies where should i start what should i watch i almost always when i give them a list will have the thing on it yeah definitely no matter what their taste level is or the kind of horror they're interested in i'm like you need to go watch the thing i think this is required viewing for everybody 100 percent agree it's finally Who's the hottest guy in the thing? It's got to be McGrady. Kurt Russell. All <laughs> fucking gay. Yeah. Like last night when we were watching it, when he first steps out of that shack, right? And like the light is hitting him and he's got that bottle of scotch or whatever and the hair is kind of flowing and the beard's there. And I'm just like, I would totally blow him like right there outside that shack. I don't care how fucking cold it is. So I was like, let's just do it. Yeah, he could get it. I love it. Hottest guy. I mean, and this is coming from a movie that is a total fucking sausage fest. It is. So. Yeah. Sheesh. 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 <laughs> Uh, I just said I would blow somebody and then I had the least explicit thing that ever come out of my mouth. (laughs) Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on the thing, guys. We know there was a lot of information in here and a lot of our thoughts and feelings about it. And as always, we would like to know what you think about this movie and our conversation. Find us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com. Or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Hmm. Listeners, would you like to see my thing transform? Tie me to this couch. (laughs) Test my blood? (laughs) Before sexual activity? I recommend that. Uh, like we said earlier, we have one more The Thing to talk about, and that's the 2011 version of the year that came out. Um, that's going to be happening over on Patreon. So head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers to get that bonus episode and all the other episodes that we have to offer. We might have time this month to squeeze in a year in review. Otherwise, I don't know, with various travels that we have in this uh, very exciting January that we have held for us in our personal lives and our podcast lives we might have to squeeze into february we're not sure yet yeah so stay tuned it is coming as promised it just may happen a little later than we normally do right and finally we need some reviews guys head over to apple Podcasts or itunes leave us a five-star review and tell us why you like us and we're going to read that on shooting the flames you can also rate us on spotify or whatever you listen on really that's right Hopefully. Send us a DM. Tell us why you like us. We like that. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel warm. 
from the cold. <laughs> well, Robert, I know that you've been through a lot with this recording, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter recording this episode. <laughs> All right, fine. Me too. Let's go off and have some sweet dreams. Sweet things. We gotta be fucking kidding me. It wasn't recording that whole time. And you're, I know you're lying. Because <laughs> you would have noticed earlier. I know. I, I check constantly. I can see it in your glasses. So I know you're fucking lying at this point. <laughs> I have learned to look. <laughs> <laughs>